There is something about the first long dark nights of winter that make us crave flickering candles, low lights, fulsome red wines and things that sparkle. It's perhaps for that reason, as the clocks fall back, that we've gravitated towards the theme of jewellery, adornment and just colour in this edition of the show. We pull up a chair and sit down to discuss the history of jewellery with two peerless experts, from the ancient and very human urge to wear shells and beads, to the displays of 19th century opulence and the place where art, design and jewellery collide. Our New York correspondent visits a performance that opens the dance reflection season, a programme run by Parisian jewellery house Van Cleef and Arpels. Van Cleef's New York run is studded with experimental explorations of movement. We find out how the house's founder's love of modern choreography is still important to the contemporary Maison. We also visit a show exploring the pioneering colour of the Victorian era, hear from a historian using objects to retell history through a female gaze and muse on the enduring allure and nuanced beauty of Scottish tweed. This is Confet Corner and I'm your host, Sophie Grove. Suddenly I discovered that the headpin around 1900 was a way for women to defend themselves in the streets. So it was used like a real weapon and it became something very popular and it also fueled big discussions about the safety of women in the streets around 1900 and this was something I didn't know at all. Why would you like to have a diamond that says around it, I'm not a diamond? I think it is a little bit like wearing a fake Chanel bag what are you trying to achieve with that? Classic tweed is woven from the hues of Scotland's landscape. Its earthy tones of ombre, moss, mustard and mauve reflect the heather, bracken, woodland and moorland. Its textured twill mirrors newly ploughed fields and withstands the blustering winter winds. Wearing it, you feel as though you are part of the landscape. Welcome to this episode of Confect Corner. I'm your host, Sophie Grove, in London, and I'm joined once more by Marcella Palak in Zurich and Gillian DeBias here in the studio with me. Hello, Sophie. Hello, Marcella. Hello, hello, Sophie. Hello, Gillian from Zurich. <laughs> well, as usual, we like to start each episode with something that's caught our attention in recent weeks. Marcella, what do you have for us this month? So last time when I was in Paris, I went to the amazing Dries van Noten shop, you might know. And then I discovered that there is a new sister boutique on Quai Malaquais, just a few steps away from the main boutique. And it's specialized in these beautiful perfumes from Dries van Noten, accessories and the stunning costume jewelry of the creative Belgian designer. I just love everything what is in there. So there are necklaces and bracelets and they are, you know, very modern and creative. And at the same time, you can wear it also to just to jeans or black evening wear. You can wear it actually always. They are fantastic. It's such an amazing um, concept of retail because the main flagship is just like a living room, like a beautiful Viennese ballroom or something. It doesn't feel like a shop. I love this idea of um, perfume fragrance and jewellery, strong accents of your personality that you can uh, play up or down. I love it. And it feels like at home, you know, you can discover some of the jewellery in velvet drawers so you open one after each other and every time you say wow <laughs> I want to have that so I have a reason to go back there next time when I'm in Paris and Sophie <laughs> how about you what do you have this time well I have been in London most of this month but I went down to Savile Row to meet Daisy Natchbull who is one of the first women to open an atelier on the row and she's got a new collection which is actually ready to wear but it was so interesting to glance down in Atelier to watch the bespoke suits being made for clients. But then just to walk along the row and see these old-fashioned workshops where the suits for men have been crafted for so many years and just imagine what it must be like to be one of the only women <laughs> making suits for women on that road. This idea of, you know, tailoring and this wonderful sense of empowerment that you can get from an amazing jacket that's created just for you this wonderful tradition that's really been a masculine one for so many decades and then been given to women and how that translates some of the very personal things about it become more emotional maybe when it comes to women 
she was talking about how women's bodies change and how she adapts suits and makes suits for people to get married in and how emotional that is. So that really made me reflect on the power suit. (laughs) I just adore that street because it really has such a history of old world gentlemen tailoring. But it hasn't been stuck in the past, although you'll still witness it, and that's the beauty of it. But say, when Oswald Botang first opened up, with these incredible bursts of colour really shaking up what men's tailoring really is. But it is a street that seeped in history but keeps on evolving. I actually sat next to Oswald Botang at the launch of a collaboration he's done with Botrona Frau just a couple of weeks ago, and he was telling me about how it was to arrive there in the 90s as the only black presence in that area and just the feeling that he was pushing boundaries because now you could be in the 1950s when you're walking along that row and London and Mayfair can feel very old-fashioned with the gentlemen's clubs around and that's why the workshops were there but then there is that push and pull and he's done so well and expanded and there's this amazing sense of creativity in that corner that he occupies. Which is weirdly where Daisy Natchbull is as well, just next door. (laughs) That must be something in the air. (laughs) Time for another field trip, I think, for me. And Gillian, where have you been? Tell us. Well, like my child, I've been lucky enough to be in and out of Paris these past few months, although we're never together. But I went to the very first edition of Design Miami Paris. And this really was set to coincide with Art Basel's second outing in Paris. So it's a a confluence of really the international art world descending on Paris and now the contemporary design world falling on Paris. And it's a perfect mix. What made this especially exceptional was that it was housed in Karl Lagerfeld's old mansion in Saint-Germain. And it was this extraordinary casting against type where you have this sort of Renaissance palace, which is like a mini Versailles. And then the galleries choose and curate and very well-edited selection of design pieces, starting from the early 20th century right the way to the present. I think you look at design differently when it is in an unexpected setting. And Design Miami Paris is wonderful because it shines a spotlight on international design, but there certainly was a great outing of French contemporary design galleries. And it makes you realise how strong France is in contemporary design. So even after Design Miami comes and goes, moves on to another city, Paris is full of exceptional design galleries. You can go any time of the year. I love wandering along Rue de la Seine Mm -hmm. and all the amazing design galleries there. Just beautiful pieces of Art Deco, immaculate kind of Le Corbusier. And then you just feel like you just could take any of it home. But I was also interested in Art Basel Paris, which is confusingly so many places at once, but last year was so successful. Mm -hmm. I think it took people by surprise. Did it have that sense of excitement? It definitely had the same sense of oxygen that it was bringing to a city because there's something about the art world and Paris and it's everything from culture to commerce. And at this moment in time, I think leading up to the Olympics, it's a very heady cauldron there. So it was very, very dynamic, the energy. And then there's so many different events now being added on. Design Miami, there are off-piste events. It really is quite exhilarating to attend but dangerous because it really makes you want to own an apartment in Paris to put all this art and to put all this amazing design. The dream, (laughs) Gillian. Forever. Nothing quite brings a touch of glamour to the dark, crisp nights of late autumn like a statement piece of jewellery. Whether it's a subtle set of earrings, a chunky ring or a sparkly necklace, these small touches can elevate an outfit and act as a demonstration of individuality. Given the focus on jewellery in the upcoming issue of Confect magazine, we decided to convene a round table to discuss the history and cultural significance of these adornments that we have draped around ourselves for centuries. Earlier, I was joined by jewellery historian and co-author of Understanding Jewellery, Daniela Machetti, and Emma Facole, a Ghanaian-born, London-based independent jewellery artist and the Victorian Albert Museum's first curator of diaspora jewellery. I started by asking Daniela, why do we as humans wear jewellery? I think it is just human instinct from prehistoric time. Men and women felt the desire to adorn the body with something. Was it feathers? Was it bones? Drilled shells? Drilled stones? 
And it was uh, from the very beginning a combination of uh, natural desire to look more beautiful, but also jewels straight away from the very beginning became a way of displaying your status within your circle of people. Later on, also a mean of displaying your wealth. So obviously jewels beautify a woman or a man, why not, and help this person to project the status So it's something that has been with us since time immemorial, and I don't see jewelry disappearing from um, our drawers of our safes or our caskets. The idea of instinct, Emma Fur, that we're drawn to jewels as creatures, is very interesting to me. Why do you think we have this instinct, and how do you relate to that as a designer? That is very true. You know, we're drawn to shiny things. And even as Daniela said, when it was feathers and bones, it's just anything that would enhance your beauty to draw attention to you, regardless of the materials. Obviously, over time, it's become a lot more luxurious. We've moved on from bones and feathers and you have gold, you have diamonds and rubies and emeralds and all of the very, very high value, precious materials. In terms of how it relates to me as a designer, I just want to create beautiful things. And of course, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. So my pieces wouldn't necessarily be beautiful to everybody, but to the people who do find it beautiful and who are bold enough to wear them, they are very bold pieces. Um, so they're not for everybody. Then if it brings joy to the person, to the wearer, that makes me happy. I mean, I'm interested in this idea of the projection of wealth, but also the very intimate, almost spiritual value that jewellery has and has had throughout history. Has this sort of oscillated? What we've seen even recently, I think women I speak to wear jewellery in a very discreet way for themselves. It's about identity, but it's not necessarily to show off. Daniela, how do you think that has been shifting and changing and oscillating through history? And where do you think we are right now? Jewelry as fashion is just a result of what's happening in a bigger sort of social scenario. Jewels had to be worn at the end of the 19th century in great abundance by the wealthy elite simply because everybody had to outdo their friends and women were literally the business card of their husbands. So the more diamonds they plastered on the wives, the more obvious their wealth was. I mean, it was so typical of the Gilded Age and that was perhaps the peak of jewels. After that, it was just a gentle decline. Two wars did not help to encourage people to wear jewels, but it all came to an end with the 1960s and the political problems, sort of turmoil. Jewels in the 60s became suddenly not fashionable and actually problematic to wear them. You would not look good, even within a certain set of society, if you were Wearing it, that's when a lot of jewellers started to diversify and become more creative with less precious and intrinsically valuable materials. So it is just up and down that goes with the political and social history. It is true that today we wear so much less jewels than we did in the past, but even amongst middle and even lower middle class in the old days, you know, wearing a little brooch, wearing a couple of rings was the thing to do. I remember my grandmother would not have gone out of the house without a brooch pinned on her coat. I mean, would anybody go with a pin on the coat down Oxford Street? You wouldn't do it. You wouldn't be clever if the brooch was precious. And it wouldn't be socially wise to do so. Emma Foam, I'm interested in your creations because they really do feel like they have their own sort of characters and this very presence of the artisan. You've both talked about jewellery as art, but Emma, for your pieces, do feel that they have a lot of emotion. When you create them, do you feel like it's a very intimate and private experience for the person who wears it? Do they have their own relationship with these pieces? Definitely. When I'm creating... 
the emotion that you can sense, which I'm so happy to hear you say, those are my emotions that are coming through into the jewellery. But I am aware that once someone sort of falls in love with the piece and buys it and then takes it away, I'm removed from it and the jewellery begins a new life with the owner. And so those are the pieces I create without commission. When somebody comes in and sees something that I like, but they want to put a bit of themselves into it, then it becomes a collaboration. And that's where I can put pieces of the buyer's emotions. And I think that communication between you and the person that commissioned it, it's obviously a very interesting moment. But I wondered, in terms of your own also relationship to the objects, I know that you have this Ghanaian heritage and the idea that you are storytelling in a sense that you're drawing on a heritage of Ashanti ritual and tradition. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how that influences your work? My fascination with the Asante or Ashanti, both are the same, but in Ghana is Asante. So the Asante lost wax casting technique is something I became fascinated with when I was at university. And then I started to do some research and I learned that there is actually a connection to the land where I was born. And that is the Asante lost wax casting and then even moving further to Benin and Nigeria and also Ivory Coast on the other side. And so surrounded by countries where lost wax casting has been used since the beginning of jewellery making in that region. And so something that I was really wanting to go and learn how it's done, what is the difference between how they make things there and how we make things in the UK and how can I blend the two together? Then I started to learn more about gold and the significance of gold to the Asante in particular. It's interesting when Daniela was speaking about how high value jewellery denotes your social rank and your status in terms of how wealthy you are, how wealthy the husband is. It really does depend on the culture. Actually, for some cultures, it's normal to be completely adorned from head to toe in gold. Obviously, the wealthier the husband or the wealthier the family of the woman wearing the jewellery, the more adornment they would have. But it's very much normal to be completely covered in gold in some cultures. I found that really fascinating, but I'm more interested in the spiritual and sentimental value of jewellery. It's interesting because we are talking about precious metals and Ghana being this producer of gold historically and the present day. I wonder, Daniela, what you think about the advent of artificial diamond. You know, this technology is moving so quickly. We can now produce diamonds artificially. But do they have any of the value that these earth materials do? Is wearing jewellery something to do with real deep connection to the earth, to nature, almost conquering it, owning it? But it isn't necessarily just about that. I do not think that they will have uh, a future in the same way that diamonds have and will have. Why would you like to wear a fake diamond that has been produced by men rather than by nature millions of years ago have been sort of pushed up to the crust of the earth, huge pressure, huge temperatures, something that really took millions of years to form That is why I think diamond retain its value compared to something which is man-made. If you ask me if I have to choose a piece of jewellery, I will never personally go for the one with a great amount of diamonds in it because I don't think that diamonds are essential to the beauty and the sort of function of the jewel just happened to be there because it is expensive, because it is precious and because it's enhanced a piece of jewellery. But I'm very happy to wear myself and to advise people to buy another piece of jewellery not set with diamonds if they can't afford the diamonds. Why would you like to have a diamond that says around it, I'm not a diamond, I think it is a little bit like wearing a fake Chanel bag or a fake Hermès Kelly. 
what are you trying to achieve with that? Much better to wear a pretty aquamarine or a beautifully crafted gold piece of jewelry with no gem. It is fantastic, the fact that humanity managed to create diamonds. There is a huge potential into the industry for the use of industrial diamonds. But I will never buy myself or advise anybody to buy a man-made diamond piece of jewellery. Emma more broadly, do you think that people are really communing with the material when they wear a piece of jewellery. This idea that self-adornment is to do with how things look, but it's also how you feel and how you relate to the material. And I wondered, in your practice, do you feel that some materials are just more seductive to you than others? And do you think that we are really communicating with nature by wearing these pieces? I think we're connecting with nature and that power of creation when we're wearing the pieces. And like Daniela said, why would you want to wear a lab-grown diamond? I much prefer what has been created naturally over time. It wasn't rushed. It's not an instant creation. And there's something beautiful about things that take time to become We're in this culture where everything is being rushed and everything has to be ready and we need to have it now. But for me, I really do like naturally made materials, you know, the process of that formation within Earth's core. And then it's pushed up to the surface through the process of erosion and volcanic eruptions and so on. That for me is so much more beautiful. And I think that when I create with these materials, there is a connection to that place where they've come from which I can't reach, is grounding. I love working with gold. I love working with silver. I love working with bronze. I just love working with all of these metals. It depends on what I'm doing and that determines which material I use. I also love gemstones. I think they're beautiful. They are rare, in fact, a lot more rare than diamonds. And so pieces don't have to be covered in diamonds for them to be valuable. It's very interesting. We were talking earlier, Daniela, about the history of jewellery. These archaeologists unearthed a site, everything is dust apart from the jewels. Is there something very timeless and this sheer resilience of jewellery that you're really drawn to, Daniela? Definitely, and that is the reason why I'm still, after 43 years uh, in jewellery, still passionate about jewels. Although I did not start from jewels my career, I started from classics and I was an archaeologist. So funny, you, you mentioned archaeological jewels. Yes, to me, to find a jewel, be it archaeological, Hellenistic or Roman, be it from the 18th century that was worn by Marie Antoinette or something that comes from the collection of Impress Eugenie from the 19th century, It is not only the intrinsic value, the beauty of the design, the artistic value, but also its history. In the case of archaeological jewels, they are still there for us to testify that Roman Greek women love to wear gold as much as we do. And in the case of later jewels, 18th century, 19th century, It is uh, so difficult and so rare to find jewels that are still now exactly in the form they were when they were first created. And uh, as a jury historian, uh, I really appreciate the fact that no pins has been altered, uh, uh, no pendant drop from a necklace has been transformed into an earring. These jewels... uh, bring with themselves a little bit of history, a little bit of the personality of the original owner. Just to give you an example, in 2018, we sold at Sotheby's the collection of the Bourbon Parma family that was directly descendant from Marie Antoinette. And amongst all the jewels, precious jewels, big pearls, big diamonds, there was a tiny little ring with the miniature of Marie Antoinette and the lock of her hair. I put it on my finger and really I felt something going down my spine. 
I was not only wearing something historically very important, I was wearing a piece of jewelry that had been on the hands of Marie Antoinette just before she was executed. It's history. In all piece of jewelry, brings with you the vibe of the original owner or the original owners. That's very haunting. It's a good thing that you've got that ring off. Emmafer, tell me, how do you relate to historical jewels? And it's very interesting to think of these things being so ancient, thousands of years old, a direct memento or piece that someone might be buried with, someone might have really guarded as their most prized possession. There's a lot of emotion in historical jewellery. Definitely. And these pieces have lives of their own and really does give you an insight into that time period. I believe it's just jewellery and pottery that survives throughout the ages. And so it also shows me as a maker how universal jewellery is and how the techniques that were used then, we are still using now. And so in a sense, there's really nothing new under the sun. But yes, the pieces do have, if I can say, spirits of their own. And this story about the ring that Daniela tried on, I can imagine exactly what she said. And there is a bit of the person still attached to the objects. I completely relate to it in that way. I learn from them. And I think that we also need to be very much aware of what's happening in the present moment when it comes to jewellery, because in hundreds of years to come, this period will be a period that someone will be studying at university and, you know, really researching. And so every age is equally as important. So we mustn't write off what's happening now currently in jewellery. Daniela Machetti and Emma Ficole there speaking to me a bit earlier. Julian, I want to pick up on what Daniela and Emma Ficole were saying there about our connection to jewellery. Do you agree that it's part of human nature? Well, for me, definitely. I am always drawn to museum collections of jewellery, whether it's the British Museum or the V&A. There's something about adornment that when we can put it on ourselves, is just such a luxury to have beautiful things that we can wear and peacock, I suppose. And it really is just this devotion to beauty that I'm completely mesmerised. And I'm always drawn in someone's outfits, like my eyes will scan the body and I'll see that incredible ring or the stunning earrings or the like incredibly crafted necklace, I find my eyes definitely sort of are drawn immediately to the pieces of jewellery, more than the fashion. Marcella, we heard from MFA there who was uh, talking about her preference for earth materials. What draws you to jewellery? I love jewellery with the story or and the history, like a vintage Berber necklace from the Atlas Mountains or a bold bracelet from an antique market found in New York, or just love at first sight for fashion jewelry by Chanel. So it can be all materials. Actually, diamonds and pressure gems usually would make me nervous. But um, last Saturday, I discovered a minimalist gold necklace with a huge round coral disc by the Swiss fine jewelry designer Beatrice Rossi. And the beauty of this piece has just conquered this nervousness. Means I would wear it immediately. So it was so beautiful. So, you know, I can change my mind. And Sophie, how about you? Well, I don't wear all that much jewellery. I've got some really nice pieces from um, when I lived in Istanbul and I used to go down to the souk, the big bazaar. There was one Armenian jeweller who was there, one of the last Armenians in that area of the old city and he just had this tiny workshop and he was just so exquisitely dedicated to his craft and the vintage pieces one particular ring I bought from there has emeralds in it which I love the colour of but really it's more just the shape of it and the memories of it and the memories of how I felt when I first put it on I felt so intrepid and I just found out I was having a baby I remember that feeling of like breathless excitement then I think they crystallise memories pieces of jewellery which is something that really fascinates me We head now to New York City, where the latest instalment of the Dance Reflections Festival is taking place at cultural institutions across the city. 
The festival is part of a broader programme run by the French jewellery powerhouse Van Cleef and Arpels that supports creative artists and institutions linked to the world of choreography. Our New York correspondent, Henry Rees Sheridan, visited the storied Chelsea Hotel in Lower Manhattan to meet some of the artists presenting work, as well as the programme's director. This year's Dance Reflections Festival is the third instalment of the event, which held its first two editions in London and Hong Kong, respectively. It's got a thoroughly international programme that will see both classic and new choreographic works performed on some of the city's most esteemed stages, like the New York City Centre and the NYU Skirball Centre. Serge Laurent is the festival's curator. I'm Serge Laurent. I'm now responsible for dance and culture program at uh, Van Cleef and Apple's uh, Maison. Uh, and I joined the Maison three years ago to set a sponsorship program in favor of dance. For New York, the third edition is taking place now. We decided to focus on a very important choreographer, American choreographer, Lucinda Childs, and we will see her three times during the festival. And um, Lucinda is a very important choreographer because she's part of this generation we call the postmodern generation. And this generation, you know, inspired a lot contemporary dance choreographers, especially in France. In France, you know, choreographers like Trisha Brown, Merce Cunningham, Lucinda and many others, you know, are really icons, even more than in America. So it's the reason why I really wanted to connect the young choreographers we have in the festival with Lucinda Childs. Dance Reflections opened with Lucinda Childs' minimalist ballet, Dance, performed by the Leon Opera Ballet at the New York City Centre. Dance was created in 1979 and marks the first major collaboration between Childs and the composer Philip Glass. A film by the artist Sol LeWitt accompanies the performance. Here's Lucinda Childs. The piece was created in 1979 with Sol LeWitt and Philip Glass. I had only just met Philip Glass because I worked on the production of with Robert Wilson and Philip Glass Einstein on the Beach. He was my first composer. Before that, I was in a very much very experimental group. And when we decided to make, uh, to collaborate together, we turned to Solowit, the visual artist, to, to work with us. Well, the most important thing for, for me with Philip Glass, for example, is we come from minimalist tradition, which is a very strong movement in the New York scene in the, you know, in the 70s, even in the 60s. And uh, Solowit also were part of the same tradition, the same aesthetic. And to work together, to collaborate, is something I think especially for Philip Glass, he was worked before with, with choreographers, with Twyla Tharp and myself. But for Solowit, something very special happened because he felt that it would not be interesting to make a decor of his work that I dance in front of. And he wanted to somehow avoid this or get around this. And the decision was made, well, the decor should be the dancers. So therefore he created this wonderful film that's part of the piece. To have this production from Lyon to come here is very unusual. A lot of productions that I have done in Europe and that Robert Wilson has done in Europe that would not do not necessarily come here. And this is a very special uh, thing that I think and very important. I've been fortunate, you know, to to have the support from Europe so early on, uh, but I think it's a real struggle here and it's a real fight. I feel we do not have a minister of culture in the government. And I feel many of the politicians feel, well, why is, why is this important? Well, it just is, <laughs> you know. And uh, very few people, I think, uh, during the Kennedy years, Jacqueline Kennedy is the one creating the Kennedy Center and was so important, I think, to bringing more culture here. And, uh, but these days, are, these days are gone, and very often many artists are left to fend for themselves, especially in the performing arts. Among the younger artists presenting work as part of Dance Reflections is Giselle Vienne, a Franco-Austrian artist, choreographer and director. I spoke to her about her show Le Tang, which is based on a Robert Volser short story. Le Tang uh, means the pond in English, is a performance that actually is really dealing with how we get trained to slip in the patterns of relations of domination from early on. 
considering the nuclear family in our Western culture as um, the seed, the ground floor of our education to the systems of dominations we're suffering under. So we try to invent a language, a form, an art form that Julie Shanahan and Adele Nell are speaking. It's like another language to try to understand our perceptive frames and shift them. So we understand how is it possible that inequality is building in the depths of our flesh and how can we work on it and change it. I think all dance pieces, theater pieces, movies are always collaboration. I think we're in a culture where we want to have like one genius author, but that's not the reality. The reality is that these works are a result of a collaboration amongst many artists and not only technicians, producers, and everybody. In Letan, the four performers actually are the two dancers, actresses, Julie Shanahan, but also Sam Dozier doing the light of Yves Godin and Adrien Michel doing the sound design. They're all working live during the performers. So it's like a band. <laughs> They're all for working and it's a, it's a collaboration in the creation of the piece, but we are working every day. So every night is a very unique first night for us. That was Henry Rhys Sheridan reporting from New York. This is Confect Corner. Colour and Victorian aren't often two words used in the same sentence. It's an era in British history which conjures monochrome scenes of smog, dark alleyways and black clothing. But one exhibition at Oxford's Ashmolean Museum is shattering our dreary preconceptions and making way for a world of glorious technicolour. Confex Isabella Jewell met with the team behind the Ashmolean's Colour Revolution exhibition. The colours were zingy, you know, raspberry red, mauve purple, magenta. I think the middle classes, the more popular classes, would have gone for those very, very bright colours. Women in the 60s were looking for brilliance, not discretion. That's Charlotte Riberol there, one of the curators of an exciting new exhibition in Oxford's striking 17th century museum, the Ashmolean. The show is called Colour Revolution, but it's not the lurid 1960s under the spotlight, rather the more fusty 1860s during the rule of Queen Victoria. Many people, when they think of the Victorians in particular, don't necessarily think of it being a colourful period. They think of this very distorted idea of Queen Victoria in black, polluted cities, Dickensian slums, coal smoke and smogs, and kind of muted browns and blacks. Matthew Winterbottom there, assistant keeper and curator of decorative arts and sculpture at the Ashmolean and co-curator of Colour Revolution. Those of us that work on this period know it's a very different story. In fact, it's one of the most colourful periods for various reasons and not just that new colours were invented, but there's a whole philosophical attitude towards colour and the appreciation of colour in this period. The Victorian era simultaneously witnessed mass pollution as a result of booming industry and the invention of brighter colours than had ever been imagined. It's a tension explored in the show. I like that tension between industrial pollution and the thirst for colour. And what's fascinating with that period is that the industrial age was actually the age of industrial colour. So the very coal which we associate with the industrial age, the blackness of the age, was what enabled to produce the new dyes. So the new dyes, which we are showing in the show are aniline-based, so they're made actually from coal tar, so derived from industrial residue, which I found fascinating, how you make colour from something completely black and smelly as well. As you enter the Colour Revolution exhibition, you first walk into a black and gloomy space. Wallpaper with black and white illustrations of chimneys spitting out smog coats the room, and in a grand case is one of Queen Victoria's famous morning dresses. 
I think our distorted perspective of the Victorians comes a lot as well from the historical documents through which we look at the Victorians, so black and white photography in particular. And we have a few very interesting examples in the show of images of Queen Victoria and Albert wearing dark clothes because there was a sort of technical limitation to the medium at the time. So, you know, just couldn't reproduce colour or with great difficulty. We contrast the actual clothes that Victoria and Albert were wearing with those black and white photos and the contrast is shocking. The Victorians' fascination with colour starts in the Middle Ages and here is where the exhibition suddenly bursts into glorious colour. On show are illuminated glass windows, intricately decorated manuscripts and oil paintings. And then the idea is to come through into the world of colour. Yes, this section on the colours of the Middle Ages is also very much indebted to Ruskin because he famously believed, and he famously claimed, that the Dark Ages were not the Middle Ages, but his own industrial age. And he called the Gothic the school of colour and encouraged young artists, like the Pre-Raphaelites, which you'll see in this room, to look at medieval art and find colourful sources of inspiration there. After getting to grips with the historical context leading up to the Victorians' fascination with colour, visitors to the exhibition are treated with gorgeous fashion and fabrics that were all the rage, paisley print dresses, a stunning crimson corset which wouldn't look out of place on a Versace runway, and piercingly purple tights. I was lucky to see some of these items as they were being unwrapped when they were putting the show together. This is a really beautiful girl's dress. She's about 18. So this is a day dress, so this would have been worn, you know, in the daytime. It's from Leicester. So this is where we say that, you know, you can see just how bright this colour, and it's, you know, even bright, I mean, in the daylight it would be even brighter. But this is a coal tar dye, this is the... Gosh, it of... hasn't faded no. at all, has no, it? No, no. All these colours were made possible by advancements in synthetic dyes, which, unlike natural dyes, don't fade with time. While these new colours excited many young Victorians, some of the era's biggest artists and authors were slightly more sceptical. One of the leaders of the decadent movement, Oscar Wilde, once wrote, never trust a woman who wears mauve. People like William Morris and Ruskin hated the new synthetic because they saw them as unnatural. They wanted to go back to the old traditional techniques and reject this kind of modernity. This boom in colourful clothing, which had suddenly become accessible to the masses, had a rather interesting knock-on effect it saw the emergence of the little black dress as a fashion statement. I love the lead image, the Raymond Cassas, which really tells a fascinating story of fin de siècle cosmopolitanism and this woman dressed in a very, very chic black dress, you know. This is before Chanel, you know, she's not using black as a sign of mourning, but as a sign of elegance and exquisite taste. The beautiful black, that zingy green sofa and the yellow book she's holding in her hand, those three colours work very well together and the painting is really quite stunning. Colour Revolution explores an exciting moment of technological and artistic change, when, in an attempt to replicate the brilliance of the animal kingdom and the vivacity of the Middle Ages, the Victorians embraced harsh chemicals made from the very materials which blacken our planet. Throughout the show, we see this striking convergence. It's not a simplistic story of the colours of modernity and the colours of the past. So sometimes new colours are used to translate the colours of the past. Colour is ubiquitous today, so we take colour for granted almost, and we're arguing that only happens in the period we're talking about, in the 19th century. The material world of the Victorians completely changes, really, from the 1850s. Suddenly, everything becomes much more colourful. We no longer question where colour comes from, whereas in the past, people would have known that that particular pink came from a particular kind of plant or that animal. Now we don't. We all know it's chemically produced. We don't really know how is that produced. We have no concept of that. We just take it for granted that we can have any colour that we would like and it will be cheaply and easily available for us. And that's something I say that is very much a modern phenomenon. It's not something that our ancestors in the past would have taken for granted at all. A report there by Confex Isabella Jewell. Despite women making up half the world's population, traditionally history books were overwhelmingly male-focused, which shaped the way we thought about the past. Well, author Annabelle Hirsch has taken up the task of telling female history in a different way, looking at the evolution of the role of women in society through the quiet power of their everyday items. Confex Sophie Monahan-Kuhn spoke to Annabelle about her new book, 
A History of Women and 101 Objects, A Walk Through Female History. She started by asking her what was so appealing about examining history through tangible artefacts. I'm not a historian and that's probably why I wanted to write an alternative history in a way. I find that objects are very easy and to me appealing way to get into an intimate space but through that intimate space also tell collective stories. So I felt like through them you get much closer to the people and can kind of create the illusion to really know them, to be very close to them, to how their daily life looked like, what they felt, how the atmosphere of this whole time was. It's just a way to being much closer and intimate with the people from the past in a way. And Annabelle, there is such a wealth of objects in here and they are so varied. We'll get into a little bit more about some of the specifics of them. But I wanted to find out more about your research process and how you went about deciding which would make the cut, which ones were worthy of being part of a history of women in 101 objects. I wanted them to kind of show, because it's chronologically, so I really wanted to give a sense of what I would call like the big history, so like the chronologic of what we know as history. So I did it from prehistory to today. So this was important that you can also see like how female history kind of moved in waves because I feel like we have this idea that it was like a straight line from total submission to today, achieved emancipation in some areas, let's say. But actually that's totally untrue. So it really moved like back and forth all the time. So this was important to give this sense, so to have uh, some that are talking about a moment of emancipation and maybe of empowerment, but then also of violence, submission, and also the ideas that people had of women or men had of women and constructed. And then I had some themes I really wanted to have in there, public space, sexuality, writing, arts, the relationship to power, obviously. So it was, I had those different levels that I kind of tried to connect and to find an object that is sitting actually on this connection point. And then some objects just came to me throughout the process. Like what, which objects just, just sort of appeared? For example, the hat pin. That is a very banal object, I would say, and that I really didn't think of. And I don't know how it came up, but suddenly I discovered that the hat pin around 1900 was a way for women to defend themselves in the streets. So it was used like a real weapon and it became something very popular and it also fueled big discussions about the safety of women in the streets around 1900. And this was something I didn't know at all. And I find it so interesting how such a small and really insignificant object can tell you all these uh, discussions that they had and that they were trying to figure out how can you make the space safe for women. And you talk really wonderfully in the book about its kind of subjectivity and that you've decided about this collection of objects. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that and kind of how you think your own background influenced your choices and the sort of notion of it being a history of women, but also a kind of personal history of women. Yeah, totally. That's why it's called a history and not the history of women, because it's really my history of women, I would say. I made the choices, well, as I said, I, I talked, of course, about things that are objectively important in history, but then also I have many choices that are really just things that I really love or that I find important. For example, one of the first things I knew that had to be in there was something related to Colette, the French writer. Um, and I would say she is, of course, important for female writing, I think also like internationally. Many writers talk about her as being a big influence, but then also it was something that for me, I grew up between Germany and France and I'm very influenced by French writers. And I think my feminism is also very French in a way. So there's a lot of French stuff in there. So for example, Colette was... For me, an absolute must. I suppose that someone else would not have put her in there. This is the case for many things. But I feel like also that is important that you have the big history, but then also that you have personal takes on history because this, in French you would say, du corps, it, it gives it a body in a way. 
And let's talk a little bit more about some of the objects that are in there. I wonder if you have any personal favourites or real surprises when you were going into the research process. We talked about the hat pin, which is an incredible story, you know, and there is so much more to learn about it. And I found that when I was reading, especially about objects which I didn't think were necessarily interesting on the surface, when you kind of find out about them, I learnt loads. I wonder, do you have any kind of particular ones you're quite keen on or ones that sort of reveal something quite unexpected? Even the corset, that is something that I actually, for a long time, I was like, I'm not going to put that in there because it's so obvious, right? And also you think you know the story. You know that this is something that was a way to keep women small and unbreathing and not moving. And then I found out that in a way at the beginning it was exactly the contrary, that it was the idea to give them an allure that would underline like their strength and their power and that it was more on this idea and that women were also embracing it because they felt like this is something that gives them a kind of power. And then it changed, obviously. So I find it very interesting that many objects, it's also the case for the lipstick or actually those objects that you would expect and that seem kind of boring and they also did to me but then if you realize that their significance also changes now it's it's depending at what time also where you look at them they mean something else and they mean something else to women and they mean something else to the society that creates the narrative around it so it's very interesting Annabelle Hirsch there in conversation with Sophie Monaghan Coons. And History of Women in 101 Objects, A Walk Through Female History, is published by Canongate and is out now. You're listening to Confect Corner. And now it's time for our final thought. Buying a tweed jacket is like investing in history. From its humble beginnings as a sturdy weatherproof cloth for farmers to its introduction to the world of haute couture, as writer and editor Mari Mann explains. Like many Scottish men of his age and ilk, my grandpa wore a tweed jacket, styled with a soft faella shirt and lace-up brogues. Coarse and scratchy to hug, it gave a touch of formality to weekend lunch, served around a large mahogany table. My grandmother's everyday perfume was an ode to the hardy fabric. Tweed Balenheric, a punchy, woody scent that filled many British homes during the 1960s and 1970s. My grandparents had an air of Hollywood glamour, which stemmed from the joy of the war years being over. Tweed was smart, serviceable, and importantly, warm and waterproof, which was crucial. Classic tweed is woven from the hues of Scotland's landscape. Its earthy tones of ombre, moss, mustard and mauve reflect the heather, bracken, woodland and moorland. Its textured twill mirrors newly ploughed fields and withstands the blustering winter winds. Wearing it, you feel as though you are part of the landscape. It holds me tight as I walk the coastline of the highlands. There, its strict linear form is at topographical odds with the region's folding glens and forestry. History flickers deep in the warp and weft of tweed. From its 18th century beginnings as a heavy, hard-wearing cloth for Scottish farmers during damp, harsh winters. Then there is my family history. My great-great-grandfather on his farm in Aberdeenshire. His son as a general manager of a Clyde shipyard in Glasgow, dressed in tweed to stay smart and warm while on and off ferry boats. The tenacious cloth is still largely made in hoik in the Scottish borders. A handful of mills remain there and in the highlands. It is perhaps most synonymous with the Isle of Harris in the Outer Hebrides, home of Harris Tweed. Here it is referred to as Clomor, which translates from Gaelic to big cloth. Wool is shorn from sheep grazing on nearby hills, then dyed, pulled, teased and spun into a durable strong yarn. Harris Tweed is a true home-crafted fabric. All weaving takes place on a treadle loom at a weaver's home, not at a mill. Its economic and social impact on these isolated communities 
cannot be understated. It is ingrained in island life. For me, Tweed is resilient and fit for purpose, but also steeped in romance. It has an alter ego, and that is what keeps it interesting. Coco Chanel fell for the fabric when she borrowed a tweed jacket from her one-time lover, the second Duke of Westminster. On his estate in the Highlands, she gathered vibrant sprigs and stems that she took to her local weavers as colour references. She claimed it from the world of practical menswear and took its nubby texture into the realm of couture, softening the yarn as she went. It is still reinvented every season in bold colours and combinations, with yarns made by Piedmont-maced producer Weimar. Decades later, Vivian Westwood propelled Harris Tweed to the global stage when she began working with the company in 1987 and instilled the material with a maverick verve. I channeled the designer's rebellious spirit when I picked up a jacket at Camden Market in London as a teenager with notch lapels and bone buttons, a tactile speckled sleeve emerging from a rack of trench coats. I styled it irreverently with torn denim and cowboy boots. Later, it brought an ear formality to Edinburgh's cobbled streets as I walked to art college balancing a portfolio under one arm. It was there that I learned how to cut cloth, how it moves and hangs on the body, and the art of proper tailoring. Tweet is unusual in a fashion world so fixated on luxury. It is a symbol of rural life, all weather and all occasion. It also demonstrates the finest British handcraftsmanship and heritage. It is, at once, both my grandpa and this season's chic boxy blazer. And as a chill cools the air, Tweed offers a comforting layer, flecked with nostalgia and ready for duty. That was writer and editor Mari Mann. Martella, what are your feelings on Tweed? A staple of your autumn wardrobe? Actually, I don't own a tweed jacket, although I would love to have one. But I love men wearing tweed jackets. Tweed means you can walk through rain and storm and always look chic. And it's the opposite of all those high-tech, bad weather, functional wear, you know, that actually is not so chic. And I like also that the solid material adapts with years to the body. When I see my father's tweed jacket hanging in the wardrobe, I see him in front of me. I love this. What about you, Gillian? There's something quite timeless about the fabric. I've never really been all that drawn to tweed, but uh, now that I am working so closely with Chanel, I have a total new appreciation, nearing on obsession with it. In the essay, your writer talks about how Chanel really embraced that sort of masculine tweed jacket, and she went to extraordinary lengths to create her own tweed designs with Linton's and Carlisle. And if you have a chance, do watch the BBC documentary Arena that came out to coincide with the exhibition at the V&A. And there's a lovely little sequence where her former assistants talks about driving in a forest and Chanel suddenly, you know, makes them put on the brakes and she takes out this plateau and she goes in the forest and she collects moss and she collects leaves and acorns and sticks and she goes, this is what I want to make my tweed look like. And off she goes then and she presents this platter. But she invested traditional male tweed with a lot of flair and creativity. And um, I've been lucky enough to go to the place where Vimar in Italy, where the yarns are made. And these yarns are almost multidimensional with colours and mixed media in them. And I am able to watch the weavers, uh, Maison Lesage in Paris, weave these incredible jackets and dresses and skirts out of these commissioned yarns. And it's really wonderful to experience that whole process. And then when you get a chance to witness the show and you see the result in these extraordinary, very contemporary Virginie VR creations with attitude. Well, I didn't realise you were so qualified to <laughs> answer that question. But you really have seen, you know, the amazing workshops. And you had me at Moss because I really love that sense of that tweed is part of the landscape, the colours. And I think the essay really writes about that, the feeling that you're of 
the earth when you're walking. And I do like that sense that you can almost kind of merge into the Scottish Highlands wearing them. But it's so interesting the way she talks about the history of cloth and how, you know, we were wearing hodden before this advent of tweed and how it's about identity and just woven into the kind of history of you know, Scottishness, but also just civilization. And that brings us to the end of this episode of Confect Corner. My thanks to Julian DeBias and Marcella Palak. Confect Corner is produced by Carlotta Ribello and Isabella Jewell and edited by Christy O'Grady. If you have a story, suggestion or simply want to say hi, you can reach the team at audio at confectmagazine.com. We'll be back next month with more. But until then, from me, Sophie Grove, goodbye and thanks for listening. Listener.